The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit trying to get your brother to fix your bugs and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 326, guest Jay Franklin, recorded live Sunday, March 16, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, providing the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who loves coffee but wouldn't name his dog Hazelnut. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut. And uh, joining us, of course, is Richard Campbell in Vancouver, British Columbia, on the other side of the North American continent. Hi, Richard. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. I'm very well. I'm getting excited because, uh, well, by the time you're listening to this, people, St. Patrick's Day has come and gone, but uh, from our (laughs) perspective, we're recording it the day before. Right. So... Man, New London is having its first annual Irish parade, and it's very short. It's little parade, big party is right. the idea. Well, and you're right in the middle of it, of course. Of course I am. I'm involved in it, and my brother and I are playing. You know, at the They're going to have a tent with entertainment. And a friend of ours who does the, who did my pig roast, actually. Remember Chester who did the pig Absolutely. roast? Absolutely. Yeah, he's bringing his uh, smoked corned beef. Nice. And I've had some, and it is amazing. Never had a better corned beef in my life. All right, enough of that. Let's get into uh, Better Know Framework. All right, Sarah, what do you got for me? Well, if you recall in Tuesday's show, Richard, I began a discussion about delegates. Yes. And I would just want to continue on that line um, very slowly. Uh, Tuesday, we talked about a delegate sort of being a combination of a code pointer plus the metadata or the uh, the uh, signature of a method. Right being the parameters that you pass it and the return value and all the data types. And uh, what's great about it is just that you can just pass this object around to wherever um, and uh, whoever has access to it can invoke it. 
So there's an invoke method on the delegate, and of course, because you create it from uh, a delegate statement uh, in Visual Basic, anyway, you uh, create a you know you say something like private delegate sub or function, uh, and then the name of the delegate, which uh, doesn't really matter, of course, and then you can just provide the the list of parameters in the signature, you know, and the return value. And then you can create an object of that type. You've basically just defined a data type. And when you create an object of it, you pass the address of the, the actual method that you want to invoke. And now you have this object reference that you can pass around in your code. And not only does it have an invoke method, which has the custom signature built in, but it also has a begin invoke and an end invoke for doing asynchronous programming. Cool. And that's where I'm going to leave it today. There's going to be more, isn't there? There's going to be more. Delegates are not a simple topic. No. If you can get that, we'll get on to the next uh, part of it next week. Excellent. So, Richard, you got an email for us. I do indeed. And this one starts off, Dear Carl and Richard, I've just listened to show 322 with Stephen Forte on remote and distributed teams, and I thought it was just great. Stephen touching on his experiences of having implemented and lived the remote Scrum development cycle and how it has worked for him across cultural and time zone boundaries, I think is just invaluable knowledge that we can all learn from. I myself am just going through the process of setting up a remote development team down here in beautiful New Zealand. I had not considered Scrum being used this way before, but having heard your podcast, I've been converted and I'm now in the process of putting a setup together. Hmm. When I was listening to the podcast, I had a follow-on thought for you and Carl in regards to DNR TV. Hmm. How about doing a DNR TV to show and illustrate the Scrum setup partially described in the podcast? Huh. Show the environment setup, including all the supporting tools such as TFS with eScrum, Skype, Whiteboard, and so on. Having set the scene, finish off with a Scrum example. Show how to initially set up the eScrum, followed by showing it in action so we can see how the Scrum Master and participating developers work together. What a great idea. If I had watched a 30-minute DNR TV follow-up show supporting all the tools details, I could have been up and running in no time. I've been an avid .NET Rocks listener for a long time now, and your shows are just great. Well, the best. Keep awesome. up the good work, and I will continue to listen as long as you transmit. Kind regards, David Shelby, Hamilton, New Zealand. David, we'll continue transmitting as long as you keep listening. Let's turn it around, huh? It's, that's only fair. And yeah. I love the DNR TV idea. Oh, he ended with a PS. Hopefully, see you at TechEd New Zealand. We hope so. Yeah, we we definitely hope so. Absolutely. I've been trying to pound out all the details of all the international TechEds we're looking at. It looks like I'm not going to make a New Zealand. No. But you, sir, you will. So I can't visit your farm and do a show from the porch, huh? Uh, not this time around. Maybe next year. We'll have oh, to figure man. something out in that. Place. And speaking of TechEd, of course, we're working on TechEd US like crazy right, right now. Lots of panel discussions and show opportunities there. And there's a couple of other shows coming up that are pretty important. Uh, May 12th, Toronto, DevTeach yeah. will be there. Right. And we're going to have a panel discussion there, too, mm -hmm. on the future of .NET. And, you know, speaking of conferences... Um, we we advertised the Microsoft Financial Services Developer Conference, which happened in New York City last week. And uh, I actually went there with Mark Dunn, and we got a conversation uh, in front of a live audience with Stephen Taub on, nice. the, on the Parallel team. So that show is coming up. Uh, I only wish I could have promoted it a little bit uh, more that we were going to be there. But, um, you know, next time we will. But it was a great show, and there was about 900 people that turned out right in the uh, Times Square, the Marriott Marquis. Nice. It was really great. 
That's a fun place. Yep. And one other show we're both going to be at, Dev Connections, Orlando. Yep. Fourth week of April. That's going to be fabulous. Right after the MVP Summit. All right. So uh, as you may or may have heard us talking um, about having my brother on the show, we've certainly talked about my brother Jay uh, many times. And we don't really have a bio, but I can just tell you about him. He's uh, he's a year and four months older than I. <laughs> he's uh, a Java developer. He started by going to a VB class in North Haven by New Technology Solutions. That's Dan Mezek and his guys. And uh, then, well, he'll tell you the rest of the story. But uh, right now he's a Java developer in Groton, Connecticut, working on some really interesting stuff. And we always have good conversations, although... Um, you know, the, the java.net barrier is, is sort of what separates us, but it's always been fascinating to me to, to have these conversations with Jay and try to figure out what the common ground is. So without any further ado, my brother Jay Franklin. Gentlemen, glad to be here. And you've listened to the show many times, I know. Many and now times. now you've finally been suckered into coming on to it. Well, Jay not only listens to the show once in a while, but he actually edits DNR TV. He's well, of course. He's been the editor of DNR TV since show, what, 11 or 12 yeah, or something? About that, yep. Yeah. And so us discussing a new DNR TV is music to your ears. <laughs> yeah, except you guys have something called a scrum? What the heck is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so scrum is a, an agile uh, practice of uh, like a daily software meeting, sort of like a scrum is a huddle in rugby. Oh, okay. So it's basically a bug triage kind of uh, thing. Planning out what we're going to do for the next day. But wait, before we go tearing off into that, maybe we get a little background on you, Jay, because the last time I recall hearing a bit of your history, don't you have like a degree in, in marine architecture or something? Uh, bachelor's of Science in Engineering in Marine uh, Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering from okay. University of Michigan. That's not a software de developer degree. No. We actually followed in the footsteps of our father. Yep. He was a Navarch as well. So why aren't you building nuclear submarines in Groton? I was, but uh, I got kind of sick of it, I guess. I don't know. I turned out to be more of a glorified secretary than an engineer. Yeah, you were like the gopher between the engineers and the yard, if I remember correctly. I had a really great job. I was in a little group called Waterfront Hydrostatics, and any time something happened in the shipyard that had something to do with, uh, you know, ship hydrostatics, we were involved. For example, what's hydrostatics? Hydrostatics describes uh, how a ship attitude is in the water. In other words, how far up is the bow? How far down is the stern? Is it rolled to the port? Is it rolled to the starboard? And that kind of thing. So um, it was very important for things like um, when they launched the uh, ships, they used to launch the old 688 class, slide them down the ways into the river. And so you had to be uh, careful that. It was going down stern first, and when the stern lifted up, you have to be careful that there wasn't too much of a load on the um, on the bow poppet and things like that. I remember going to a submarine launch, Jay, where you were, like, running around with a clipboard and yelling at the dudes to, like, pound the, the hammers the right way, and you were, like, running the show, man. Well, there was – I think there was four of us engineers that were doing that, and the way – that's how they launched the submarines. Um, it's kind of like the an ancient Venetian uh, – technique where you're transferring the load from the stationary cradles that the ship was built in to the um, 
to the other cradles that actually slide down the, the ways. And what the carpenters would do is they would ram these long wooden wedges into the cradles that would force the poppets up into the submarine and lift it up off the stationary cradles. And so after, they would have these rallies where they would ram the wedges in for like two minutes. It's like watching a Viking funeral almost. Yeah. Really... <laughs> and so then after every every rally, the engineers would run around and, and measure right. how much the wedges got um, slammed in. They're so... like screaming numbers back and forth at each other. It was awesome. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it was a five-minute process either. No, it took a couple hours. And, of course, you had to coordinate it with the tide and everything and – and the video you watch whenever they launch one of these ships like that, they only show the last little bit where the thing slides off and splashes into the water and, right. and amazingly doesn't roll over or anything awful. Right. Yeah, because you know, have to have the center of gravity below the center of buoyancy in order for it to not roll over. So, Things you know, like that. for the listeners who um, never hear me talk about submarines, I was the only one in my family who didn't work at the boat, at Electric Boat. <laughs> I don't know. Building weapons of mass destruction was just never appealing to me. But uh, you're just difficult. I know. Yeah, <laughs> hippie guy. So, but anyway, um, so it's almost embarrassing that Richard knows more about these submarines than I do, and I'm sitting. I can turn around in my chair every day and look right into the shipyard. You know. So it's interesting, Richard. You know about submarines? Oh, uh, you know. I read. <laughs> I'm well read. I know you're building Virginia class over there. Richard right knows now. all. <laughs> uh, but and an interesting thing about, of course, an engineering discipline like this is that it's very structured in not only its educational method, but how you move through your career. So, I mean, you were a relatively new engineer, so the, the kind of work you get to do is somewhat restricted. It takes a while to become a senior engineer. Yeah. Um, there wasn't too many people in our little group, so it didn't take too long. Actually, you know, there was one guy in that retired in the first year I was there. And then another guy left. And so when I started, there was like six people in the group. And when I left, there was maybe two or three. So I was doing a lot of stuff. But you left. What what really got you to leave in the end? And uh, my, why software? Why not stay in an engineering discipline or a more formal one anyway? I I just got so sick of the place. I mean, all the, the little rules that they had. I mean, the last straw was that, you know, you had to swipe your badge when you came in in the morning. And, and you had to punch in a shop number for whatever it was you were working on. And whenever you changed jobs, you had to go find this machine and swipe your badge and punch in another shop order and, and then swipe your badge when you left. And it Besides, that was right about when VB was taking off and there was a lot of uh, demand for programmers and it was a lot of fun. And frankly, I twisted his arm pretty hard. So the combination of that and uh, – right? Your job was miserable at the same time your younger brother was having a ball. He was pushing me uh, to be a developer, and he got me into that class. And But there was this company, this uh, upstart software company in the area that a few of the people that I had worked with at EB had moved to. And uh, I knew one of the, one of the uh, head managers over there, and he got me an interview with the, uh, with the vice president of engineering at the time, and, and he hired me. And Jay was Jay was pretty awesome. I mean, how many how many languages did you learn like in the first year you worked there? <laughs> well, they were programming their um, their applications with this language called Mumps. Yeah, we know Mumps. <laughs> it's an acronym, and I can't remember what all that it stands for. But multi-user something. medical something. Yeah. It's like Massachusetts. The Massachusetts General Hospital Multi Utility Multi Programming System. That's there it. Yeah. 
Thank you, Wikipedia. And uh-huh. uh, it was uh, developed to run in a very small space of memory, and it was used in the hospital in these like little machines that uh, doctors would carry around, and so they had to be able to uh, take their machines and plug it into some kind of mainframe and communicate with the mainframe easily enough. So it was a um, it was a very simple language. It was basic. It was like basic in that it was uh, interpreted. And but it was there was only like 21 commands, um, but it it was very easy to communicate with a server because uh, all you did was access a variable that was mapped to the server, and that's it. That's all you had to do. Didn't you tell me at one point that everything was a string in mumps or an array or something? Everything was. It's hierarchical. It's uh, it's not um, relational. It. It's hierarchical, so and everything is a string, right? So you ha- and it's it's just like looking at uh, Windows Explorer, for example, and you have, you know, in the root directory you have a set of folders, and then in some of those folders you have more folders, and the folders have names. So you the, so the data is not only the name of the folder, but the string that's inside the folder. Yeah, or other folders. Well, and and it's it's important to get your head around just how old we're talking about. Mumps predates. C. Yeah. It predates SQL. Yeah. You know, so hierarchical data stores were the norm back then. Yeah. And it was very fast and uh, efficient and uh, and small. And the and the front end was uh, some guy's uh, grad project or something that he had sold to some company that had since gone bankrupt. But it was all you know ASCII menus and stuff in a DOS window. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zune. What was the story about Mump School? You remember the guy was like, hey, we want to send you to Mump School, and you've been there like two weeks, and he said, no, nah, look at all this code, and he's like, uh, I don't think you need to go to Mump School. <laughs> he he had just uh, gotten a job as a, from an engineer to a supervisor, and he was actually one of the guys that had moved over from uh, EB, and... Uh, so when he became supervisor, he decided that um, all the new hires should go to this mump school to learn mumps. And he came down here, down to my desk one day and told me that he thought I should go to mump school. And I said, oh, really? Well, you know, I don't think I need to because, see, this is what I did. I just wrote this program that communicates with the server and sets this and does that. And, and this. I don't even remember what the heck it was. But after he got done looking at that, he said, okay, you don't have to go to mump school. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I get the sense that uh, what you learned in engineering school really helped you in the software world. Are you just a natural, brilliant programmer? <laughs> well, he's a math whiz too, Richard. I didn't get the math gene, but Jay certainly did. Well, there were um, programming classes uh, for engineering. Um, 
that you could take as electives. And uh, I did take a few of those. So I learned, uh, I think it was Pascal and Fortran. And and then there was another, there was an, there was actually a engineering programming class. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was writing engineering programs, which was really cool. Well, and it's, yeah, it's going to be pretty math centric. I mean, if you're talking about computing hydrostatic pressures in the, for a, a submarine, that would be a nice piece of software, actually. <laughs> actually, I used to ballast those multi-billion-dollar submarines on a hundred-dollar IBM XT with a ten-megabyte hard drive using <laughs> using Lotus One Two Three and macros, <clears throat> and it could do it. Yeah, it came out with the right number. I mean, it's just you know summing up a bunch of numbers and, and centers and. Getting the right number. So after months, you learn HTML and JavaScript and cascading style sheets and all that stuff because you do a lot of that with your... You went web? Well... Yeah, the first... Wasn't the first... Well, first of all, tell us about what the company does that you work for. We have an online vehicle registration system. And so we talk directly to the DMV in whatever state we're processing registrations in. And we're in, I think, 11 states, including Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, California, uh, Ohio, and a couple of others I can't remember. The long and short of it is, Richard, when you go to buy a car, you can drive off with a plate. They just you go use their program, tap, 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 tap. They print out a registration card. You got a real plate. Whereas usually before this system, you had to go stand in line at the DMV. You get temporary plates, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to do that anymore. It was the dealership that had to go stand in line at the DMV, not not their customer. The, right. the dealership would give the customer temporary. a temporary plate. And then somebody from the dealership every you know week or two would have to go to the DMV with a stack of registration forms and, fill, and have them all processed. And wait in line. <laughs> so I'm still trying to get the bridge from between the Mumps app and this app. Well, that was this app. The, oh, okay. It was the, originally written in Mumps, and then you were you decided to go web with it. The right. front end was uh, Mumps in DOS, uh, Data Tree Mumps, using this HyperM ASCII menu thing. And the back end was uh, Mumps in a GTM Greystone environment on a Sun Solaris machine. Uh, and it talked to the DMV using uh, the DMV regular green screens that, you know... any if you, if you went to a DMV satellite office, that's pretty much the screen that they would see. And that's what our server program communicated with using like a... Terminal a, emulation. Yeah, Brixton of. screen scraper yeah. thing. It's all good. It's yeah. all good. <laughs> <laughs> so then they so, decided that they were going to, you know, get away from mumps because... Uh, at the time, Windows 95 and Windows 98 was coming out, and you know we had to run in a DOS box, and it got harder and harder and harder to to get that to work. So they decided they were going to go thin client and use Oracle, and use their uh, PL SQL language to generate HTML dynamically. Oh, yeah, and uh, access it, the Oracle database and all that stuff. And it this was like doing the same thing in Trans SQL. This is pretty awful. TransSQL? That's Microsoft's flavor. PL-SQL, TransSQL, competing flavors. I think, does TransSQL have um, like logic flow, like if statements and for loops and all that? They do. It doesn't make it a good idea, but they have it. Yep. 
well, that's kind of like PL SQL. And then you can embed SQL statements right in there with your cursors and all that stuff. And so they came up with this um, package of programs that would um, generate HTML on the fly and, and uh, go through their little uh, structure to send it back through. They had a web server kind of built into their into their database. I've told a couple of the stories that you've told me on the show before. One of them was just as a side when the Oracle guys came in and it was just like an enormous, enormous, gigantic app. And and one of them said, this ain't no wimpy Microsoft app. This ain't no pipsqueak Microsoft app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah, it took the guy, you know, like half a day just to install the database right. on the on the box and get it all configured right. Yeah, ain't no wimpy. So, and the other one was, um, of of course, when the, uh, after all that JavaScript got uh, down to the client, it took like five minutes to load sometimes. And oh, so that was that was one of the reasons you guys decided to go to to real Java. That was later on, yeah. Yeah. The, the first couple of applications we just did, um, you know, mostly H, just plain HTML with uh, minimal JavaScript JavaScript on the client to do like you know validation and that kind of thing, and, and pretty much all the work was uh, in the PL SQL on the server. And are you, so you're posting back to like a CGI handler that hands it back to the PL SQL. A CGI handler? No, yeah. that's the web, the original web interface. No, it was. Uh, it would, the request would actually make it back into a PL SQL program through their, the web server, the OWS or whatever it was. So there's a web had. server built into Oracle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not a very good one, actually. After a while, they gave up on it and just, uh, I think they used uh, Apache Tomcat instead and stuck it in there. So you, it looks like the path to Java for you was getting too much JavaScript on the client and, and needing something the, better. The next step after the the plain HTML application was when we had this big debate: should we have a you know a fat Java client or should we have like a hybrid uh, HTML with uh, Java applets that communicate via RMA kind of asynchronously, kind of like Ajax does uh, with the server. Right. And uh, at the time, it was, I'm trying to think, 1998, 99, maybe, maybe 2000. Yeah, that's like the height of the JSP. Yeah. And so they decided that Java really wasn't ready for all that yet. So <laughs> we went with uh, like a dynamic HTML kind of thing with Java applets communicating to the server. And, and as- you were doing iframe stuff post back too. So it was essentially yep. Ajax. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In hidden frames for you know to right. hold variables and stuff. And uh, as Carl said, we uh, we would upload a whole bunch of data to the client um, when they first logged in uh, and th- and throw it in all these JavaScript arrays. Uh, and uh, it took a long time, but it made once you got all that stuff loaded up, it made the client a lot faster to do you know zip code lookups and things like that. But, yeah, startup. Yeah, startup in the morning is tough, but after that, you're snappy. So, did they complain about it about the startup time? Yes, they did, and and uh, that was right around the time where we bought this other company that was doing the same thing we were doing, all only on a much smaller scale. And um, they had an application in the state that we were doing this hybrid application in, which was Virginia, but it was like a VB3 client, and. Um, we ended up just using that and totally abolishing the hybrid uh, DHTML JavaScript thing. 
So you went to a smart client that called across the inter- the internet. I don't know too much about that architecture. Um, it was a uh, it it had all kinds of crazy things. It had VB3 on the client, and I think it had um, some kind of Netscape server on the background, and I think it actually used a Progress database, and it it was. It was pretty crazy. And you call that the non-hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so then after we bought this company and they, you know, so now we have like two or three technologies going at our company and this right. other company had two or three technologies going. They, you know, were in the same problem, but then we bought all their problems. So now we had everything. So then they decided, well, you know, we need to start getting things uh, in the one one boat, one technology and get everything the same. A little more standardized. And you're pretty much stuck with Java now for several years. Yeah, and that's when they, you know, they went out and got a couple really smart Java guys, some swing guys. And so by then it's like 2002 and Java is a little more mature now, uh, especially with the the swing. Swing for those .NET developers that don't know is the sort of the UI uh, side. It's the UI toolkit, the forms toolkit. Right. And they called it Swing because it supposedly could run in Windows or it could run in Unix, or, and, it, and it used the native widgets of whatever that operating system was. Right. So it's slower than, you know, your standard VB forms because VB is writing directly to the API, and it's got a l- another layer of indirection. It basically has one handler for every single GUI widget that you have in your application. Yeah. But that's pretty cool. I mean, it meant you could work against any platform with that. It's really the the uh, GUI equivalent of what Java did in the first place for lang- for platforms. But then you um, you sort of now are have sort of migrated to the server side, have you not? Well, that's really where you are these days. It, it kind of just worked out that way because um, I was one of the you know developers that had been there for a while, so I knew um, the back end, the Mumps database. In the Oracle databases, so um, Mumps hadn't gone away. Well, what they decided to do was to rewrite the Mumps products using this uh, Fat Java front end client because they were still having this issue where you know now you're getting into you know Windows 2000 and uh, DOS just had a terrible time running in in that. So um, they wanted to rewrite the client, but they didn't want to take the time to rewrite the back end. Or, or rewrite the database because actually the the main reason was was because the database was so closely linked to the communication with the DMV. Right. That and and the da- we didn't have any problem with the back end, the Mumps database. As a matter of fact, we still use it to this day in in four of our states. But um, it works. It does, and, and it's fast. It's like an object database. It, you know, it, it's it's, it's now so old. It's come back around again. It's hip. <laughs> <clears throat> so we had to write a backend um, Java servlet uh, to communicate with uh, the Mumps database, and we uh, had a uh, guy working for us that was uh, from New Zealand. That's a funny story too. Speaking of New Zealand, you guys had that email from New Zealand. I was wondering. Yeah, Richard was born there. Oh, oh really? Was indeed. Yeah. He, Family farm still down there. His wife got a job here at Pfizer, and he just kind of came over here with her, thinking, "Oh, maybe I'll get a job, and maybe I won't." And he found us, and he started working for us. And he was this, you know, Java genius, and not only Java, but pretty much anything computers. And so he wrote these Java classes that communicated with the Mumps uh, database, 
And, nice. And yeah. uh, we still use it to this day. Yeah. And so um, I just kind of ended up on the server because I knew the back end and I knew, you know, the business rules and, and the messages that go back and forth between the DMV. And uh, that's just kind of how And how I got to I gotta also brag about you, Jay, a little bit because, and I've said this on the show before, that you don't use any visual tools whatsoever. You're all command line and text editors and, and everything like that, right? You don't use any sort of, uh, in, you don't have IntelliSense. You know, and I get crap for that every single day. <laughs> <laughs> so other guys in the team are using more they, visual tools. They use um, Eclipse and, Eclipse, and yeah. um, JBuilder. What I was also about to ask: uh, any J2EE or you know any of those other frameworks? Java Beans. You guys used that once, well, didn't you? We um, we kind of shied away from J2EE because you know by the time we were at the point where we could have used it. Um, it had kind of come and gone, and people were saying that it wasn't scalable and it was extremely, uh, you know, resource heavy, and all these other kinds of fearful things about it. So, we just kind of made up our own little beans. Um, I guess they call them just plain Java objects or something. Pojo, yeah, Pojo, plain old Java objects. Yeah, and, we have Pono and use and that. on our side, you know. <laughs> we use uh, a third party. Um, tool to communicate between the client and the server called Caster, which uh, takes your Java object and uh, renders it or marshals it in uh, XML, a SOAP message. We call it serialization and deserialization. Yeah. But you have, you. what do you say, you can, render? You can do that. You can serialize Java objects too, Package. but then it just comes out some binary thing. But um, We can do it as binary or XML, but depending on what's in there, some things won't serialize, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. My point was that um, Caster requires the objects that you're going to be converting to XML. Caster requires them to follow the Bean standard. Ooh, so yeah. Okay. So you have to have the proper getters and setters and um, properties. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and then you have. Uh, I'm translating. <laughs> and and you have a uh, XML mapping file that um, has any anomalies in it that that you want to map to XML. But and ultimately this is just taking that that chunk of memory that is the Java object and serializing it to XML so that you can stash it away in a database or or ship it to another machine, yep. whatever you want to do. Yep. And then that's how we communicate with the server. And then you know when it gets to the server it just unravels it and puts it back into your Java object. So you have to make sure that your objects are in sync between your client and your server. You know, you don't sound like a virulent anti-Microsoft guy. You know, <laughs> it's all the same, Richard. The, I, I'm with you, yeah, man. It's all the same. It's it's true. Doing... You know what? And I, any, guy, any guy I talk to who predates the, this battle of the frameworks just doesn't buy into it. Yeah. You know, this is just another development environment. Good software can be written anywhere. Bad software can be written anywhere. Yep. And, you know, your best proof of that is the fact that you're still using mumps because it works. That's right. It doesn't matter that it's 40 <laughs> years old. That's right. Yep. Ain't broke. <laughs> Don't be fixing it. Yeah. Well, you know, it does. It, it's the same architecture that, you know, our listeners are used to doing and creating objects, serializing them, sending them over the wire. We just have tools to, to, um, to do it for us then, uh, for better or for worse. You know, that all the plumbing stuff is sort of done for us. But now we have you know WCF Windows Communication Foundation which makes it even easier 
ridiculously easy actually to do that kind of stuff. Do you see um do you see your your company sort of uh uh sticking with Java for for the long haul? Is there anything that um any anything that on your wish list that you wish it had that it doesn't have? That I wish Java had or the company? Well, yeah, either your wish list for Java or the company's. Have you had discussions about you know things that are that you'd like to do that you can't? Um I think Java is going to be here for a, a long time in our company. Anyway, we're pretty, yeah. you know, heavily invested in it, and we're still developing um, new products in it. Um, do I wish it had anything else? I don't know. I I don't like the way that the GUI works. I don't like the fact that you know that it uses widgets the way it does. I wish. It, I think they're you know they're too restricting, and I don't think they look that great. And I wish we were using. There are other front ends, other GUIs that you can use with Java. And you're really talking about Swing here, not so yeah, much yeah, Java. Yeah, um, I, I can't remember what they're called. I, I was looking into it a while back, and there's one that I think, uh, if anybody has ever used Winamp, the the GUI that Winamp uses, you can use in Java. Wow, that's, that's cool. a skinnable GUI too, isn't it? And there's um, there's the and. There's other ones where they're not using the native um, win, and I think that's one of them. Actually, you're not using the native uh, Windows widgets. You're, it comes up with your own widgets, and you can customize them that way, and give them all, you know, individual uh, handlers to the system. Now you've seen Venket talk on DNR TV about generics and stuff like that, and we've done some things with generics. What do you think of that? Generics. I've actually just started learning generics in the last uh, year or so and I you know it definitely makes things a lot easier I don't understand everything there is to know about them but what it makes it makes your code a lot easier to read and maintain and and understand I think when you know you don't have to cast objects back and forth and and you know hope that they're the right thing in right. runtime makes anything any kind of list development easy yeah uh, do you keep up? Do you keep up with Java about what's going on with the language and any new innovations that are coming along, or plugins or add-ins that you can uh, put into the language? Not really. I I just kind of you know sit in my little hole and do my thing every day. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, since last year, uh, most of the Java uh, language and technologies are all under the GNU license now. Anyway, they're all public license. So oh really. So, Sun can go away. It doesn't matter. Oh, really? So, so, are you saying that the language itself can be um, can be improved on by the general populace? That's the theory, but of course, that's always been true to some degree or another. It's just that really, there's there's nobody out there per se holding a particular control over it. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm just basing on what I've I've read and learned. No, I uh, think and I'm I've, sure there'll be a Java guy out there somewhere who's going to yell at me, but I'm okay with that. I think I've heard that recently too. That that um, Sun released, you know, the maintenance of the language to the open community or something like that. Or, or After years not of Not necessarily the open community, but, a, you know, a group of select companies or groups or something like that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and it's a good thing because it, it, you know, it doesn't need to be held on to. No. It, it'll grow on its own if it's, if it's working. And obviously it it's is. It's definitely I mean, not but... how they make their money. No, there's no, there's no, even Microsoft, the .NET frameworks source codes now available. Yeah. 
Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. What are, what other kinds of uh, differences are there just in the 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 parlance of Java and .NET? Um, we get we've talked about getters and setters prop being properties. That's just what you call them. But uh, I mean, you have arrays, you have collections, you have garbage collection in the in the Java runtime, right? Yeah. From what I've seen, uh, you know, editing the the uh, DNR TV shows, Java and C Sharp are pretty much identical. Yeah, language wise. Yeah, when I see C Sharp code, I I can immediately recognize it, and um, I don't think that's an accident. I you know oh, when they not. when they went to develop uh, the .NET environment, they had you know a few years of Java to look at and see, you know, what was good, what was bad. In fact, I read I think in some blog that uh, Microsoft probably would have used Java if they could have. But I guess at the time there were a lot of legal issues. Yeah, they they did originally want to uh, include Java. Yeah. I I heard one Microsoft guy say, yeah, we tried. We just kept getting sued. Yeah. (laughs) So so they stopped. But, uh, you know, C Sharp is pretty much the same as Java, just, you know, public class with the curly brackets and... And all the syntax is almost identical. Well, and what was fascinating, going back to like 99, 2000, when .NET was first coming together, before it was even called .NET, and it was, of course, strongly influenced by Java, and lots of discussion about Microsoft essentially copying Java. And one of the things that was a strong complaint in Java back then was the garbage collection model of memory management. And you got to go back to the Chris Sell oh, the show Chris where Sell he show. explains. Right. That whole debate of, you know, as much as it was the thing you could push on that was bad about Java, and Microsoft did this at the time, saying, why well, don't develop in Java? Well, you know, garbage collection, just not a great way to manage memory. Non-determinist- and in the end, after all that, that was the best way to manage memory in .NET. Well, that was the one of the big things that they tried to improve on um, C++ when they developed Java was, you know, no more memory pointers. You right. don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. We're going to take care of it for you. Yeah. And, yeah, it had a kind of a rocky road to begin with. But but it turns out, as Richard said, that the non-deterministic finalization, there's a mouthful for you, of uh, of the garbage collector is really the best thing. Although Chris Sells, I don't know if he's still on a crusade, but he has he's on a, he was on a mission to put reference counting back. Uh, well, not back, <laughs> but into .NET. Jay, in the days of COM, which was, you know, the VB and C++ days, the COM objects are ob- object uh, have a reference count. So every object has a counter. Every time you may add a reference to it, that number goes up. And when the number goes down to zero, then it uh, is immediately finalized. And uh, that uh, the, the deallocation of memory turns out to be more expensive than the allocation of memory. So that's why the garbage collector is what it is. It just saves up all the uh, all these objects until the memory pressure builds up to a point where it, they need to be taken out or there's enough latency and free time to do it without incident 
And for those who, who haven't listened to .NET Rocks since the very beginning, we are literally talking about show number 10. Yeah. So way back, 2002, the Chris Sell Show, it is the definitive description of the memory model of .NET. Yep. 2002? Yeah. 2002. You've been doing this for six years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to your brother, man. Hey. I showed up in 2004. I'm the new guy. <laughs> Time flies. Yeah. No, you're right, uh, Richard. That and and it's still uh, an important show to listen to today because the memory model has not changed no. since then. No, and it, you know the funny thing now is that we're banging against memory limits more than ever before. Certainly, the work I'm doing, where every machine I've got's got four gigs of RAM, and we're 64 bit everywhere, right. and all that sort of thing. And you need more. We need more memory. The the .NET memory model, I think now, I'm willing to say, is getting long in the tooth. Yeah, something's going to happen. I mean, something's got to happen. Especially when you talk about parallel programming, right? And and right. multi-threaded programming. You know, memory management takes on a whole new meaning with oh, multi-threaded for sure. programming. You think about 1998, 1999 where they were designing this stuff for .net. The computers we were using then are dramatically different than the ones we're using now. Jay, do you do much asynchronous programming? Um, myself personally, I don't. Every once in a while, I have to, um, you know, spawn a thread or do something like that. Um, we have all that kind of stuff. Most of that stuff is in the client where, mm. uh, they're spawning threads to, um, communicate with a server or do something like that. I have done it. It's pretty easy. I mean, yeah. you just create a thread object and, you know, and you extend it or whatever and, um, you know, call like a run method on it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it just goes off and does its thing. Yeah. Typically, it's one long operation that comes back and tells you when it's done. There's no real – it's pretty atomic is what you're saying. Yeah, and you can have um, an event fire off when it comes back and a listener for it yeah. and, and uh, have it do whatever it needs to do. So a listener – now, this is something we were talking about the other day, isn't it? Uh, where we have events and event handlers – you have listeners, so the listeners actually subscribe to those events, and we have the same kind of thing, like an ad handler. Um, you know, in, a, in the in, in C plus plus C sharp, it's a little bit different, but in VB, being that I'm a VB programmer, we have a statement called ad handler, where you basically say for this object's event, uh, this is the code that needs to be called for that. So you wire them up. Yeah. Uh, is it similar to that? Pretty much, yep. you yeah. Have, you uh, register listeners for an object's event or group of events, and then um, and you basically implement um, this listener interface, which has a method that says, you know, process action event or process property change event or something like that. And the event comes in, and, you know, you get the payload out of the event, which is anything that you wanted to put into it from the object that created the event, and... Now, is there a standard interface for the parameters that get passed into the event listener? Um, like a, a just an object reference? I, th- I think it's just an object, which in Java is the topmost. Everything comes from an object in Java. So it can be basically any one object. Or, you know, the object can be an array list, which, which would be a group of objects. And jo- does Java have multiple inheritance, too? Can you inherit Java, from no. more than one base class? Java does not have multiple inheritance. That's yeah. the one thing that they thought was, you know, an evil in C++. They, they thought the same thing in .NET. For pretty much the same reason. And, and it's interesting, uh, it's interesting the parallels when you look purely at the Microsoft Sun level of this. But then go and take a look at the tools. Look at stuff like N-Hibernate. Yeah. 
where much of the innovation in technology that the Java groups have done have migrated to .NET in a lot of cases. We're just starting to use Hibernate in a in a brand new uh, application. This is this is going to be our first end to end new application that we've ever done uh, in Java. We're, wow. we're not rewriting an old application, an old product. We're starting over. So we're taking you know what we had for the client from the last one and and modifying it to fit. Um, Illinois, I think it is, or Indiana, one of those I states. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but the back end is going to be uh, Oracle, not Mumps. And uh, right, we're using uh, Hibernate to uh, to uh, persist all of our Java objects. So it's interesting because you have to write your objects to work with Castor, so they have to right. conform to the Bean standard, and they have to work with Hibernate. So they have to, you know, everything has to have uh, a long. Uh, internal ID, and uh, you can't have any, you know, crazy array structures. Or I mean, you can have them. But Does that you, stuff get in the way, those restrictions? Yeah, sometimes. And um, Isn't there a rule around constructors as well? Yeah, have to have a default constructor uh, with no parameters um, for both. Ca- we've had to have that anyway for caster. Oh, okay. Uh, because they use reflection to instantiate the objects, and then they go through the, you know, the the setters to populate all the fields. But um, the one of the restrictions in Hibernate is that you um, you can't have like a, a class. Um, oh no, what is it? If you have uh, if you have an abstract class that has um, a bunch of different objects that uh, extend from it, then you have to now see you can do that you can you can store them all in one table no that's not it <laughs> there's i can't remember what it is something weird there's there's little restrictions that you wouldn't think would be you know important oh i'll never do that but then when you start designing a big system like we have where you have you know vehicles and registrations and titles and owners and lien holders and lessees and and you know plates and and registration documents and all these crazy things, um, it you can you can see easily where you know oh yeah well why can't I do that oh because Hibernate won't let you, but it's a pretty cool tool when after you get it all set up you know it's just you're in a session and you have a object that you say make persistent and then you're done you, you, after the session's over everything gets flushed to the database and you don't have to write any crazy SQL commands and and things like that. Well, it's basically creating a, this is a library for dealing with that impedance mismatch between what your object needs and what the database stores. Impedance mismatch. There you go. That's my my little electronics background popping up. (laughs) Just means a disconnect between the two. Um, we, we talked to, did you listen to the show that with, uh, Ornini and Ted Neward, Jay? No, I didn't. The ORM Smackdown? No, I haven't. The gist of the argument was whether we should, I mean, well, okay. It wasn't the the only argument, but a big argument was uh, that had been going on. It's pretty much settled now, but was whether to have dynamic SQL in your app and give your application access to the tables directly, which has always been sort of a no-no and a. Uh, you know, for DBAs, or should you write store procedures, and uh, which could be a, a nightmare for the developer. So, um, I it pretty much has been 
decided, and I'm going to get hate mail for this, Richard, I know, but I think the general consensus is you got if you're going to do that kind of stuff, the ORM tools, you really need to have access to the tables. And uh, uh, it's just a, you know, that's just the way it is. And, and there's, of course, degrees of resistance to that and workarounds for it and so forth. Just to calm everybody down. Yeah, to calm everybody down. And, of course, there are things that you should and shouldn't do when you do have that kind of power in the application. Well, and, and the other angle on this that was Ted's argument against ORM, and, of course, Oren being a big and hibernate guy, very pro-ORM, is the granularity of data that persisting an object from the database may grab much more data than you actually need and so do a lot more work than is necessary. That's why you have to be very careful when you design your objects that you're going right. to make persistent and send yeah. to your Hibernate session that they don't have stuff in it that you... That we had that exact same problem. I mean, we have these objects that have been sitting around for years and years and years, like, you know, a transaction object top level, and it's got all this crap in it that have just kind of, you know, gotten stuck there over the years and we you know needed it you know 10 products ago but we don't need it anymore and right but it's still there so well and i think this is where you see that these greenfield apps are the best opportunity to go to orm it's very tough to retrofit an orm into an existing application and not end up with a lot of baggage green and greenfield being a new buzzword that we've just been picked up on uh, we just picked on up on lately meaning greenfield means a blank slate a blank project Whereas a brownfield has some sort of templates built into it. Something, you know. yeah. The buzzwords in this industry know, are crazy. crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so besides being Carl and Jay, you're also the Franklin brothers. This is true. Uh, the, we uh, were that the intro first. music for this sh show being uh, Toy Boy, which is one of your, uh, your songs. That's right. Gee, you uh, probably can't tell the difference, but Jay and I are both singing that song. Yes. We trade off I can the tell the difference, but... But I've spent my time as an engineer and listened to that music an awful lot. In fact, <laughs> I have a distinct advantage that Carl feeds me early mix downs of all your tunes. So I know there's a new Franklin Brothers album coming. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But uh, how about playing something for us, guys? Well, I, 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 you've heard me play many times on the show, but you haven't heard Jay. So we were talking about this. And I don't know if people know this about Jay, but he is the premature reincarnation of Billy Joel. Premature. Premature reincarnation. See how Billy Joel, not dead. Not dead. dead. <laughs> kind of like you, Richard. You're not dead. And uh, so we decided, uh, you're going to play uh, scenes, Jay? Scenes from an Italian restaurant? Yeah, sounds good. All right, let's go to the piano. All right. Jay, you know, this is the reason why we built the studio, so that uh, so you could do this here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of you, man. Billy Joel's scenes from an Italian restaurant. Your appetite 
meet you anytime you want in our Italian restaurant. I got a good job, I got a good office, I got a new wife, I got a new life, and the family is fine. Oh, we lost touch long ago, you lost weight, I did not know, you could ever look so nice after so much time. Do you remember those days hanging out at the village green? Engineer boots, leather jackets, and tight blue jeans. About New Orleans, gold beer and hot lights, my sweet romantic teenage nights. And the king and the queen at the prom Riding around with a car top down and the radio on well, Nobody looked any finer Or was more of a kid at the Parkway Diner We never knew we could want more than that out of life Surely Brandon Eddie would always know how to survive Oh, 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 oh Still going steady in the summer of 75 When they decided the marriage would be at the end of July Well, everyone said they were crazy Brenda, you know that you're much too lazy And that he could never afford to live that kind of life Ah, oh, but there we were waving Brenda and Eddie goodbye Oh, oh, oh Well, we got an apartment with these Carpets and a couple of paintings from Sears A big water band that they bought with a bread they saved for a couple of years They started to fight when the money got tight And they just didn't count on the deals No, no
getting divorced It's a matter of course And he parted the closest of friends Then the king and the queen Went back to the green But you can never go back there again No, no Brenda and Eddie had had it already by the summer of 75 From the height of the low to the end of the show for the rest of their lives They couldn't go back to the greases The best they could do is pick up their pieces And we always knew they would both find a way to get by Oh, and that's all I heard about Brenda and Eddie I can't hear more cause I told you already And here we are with it Brenda and Eddie, goodbye Oh, oh, oh Franklin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, sir. That was awesome. Yeah. You you know what else is he can play really well? Um, first of all, he's a great honky tonk blues player, and the whole Vince Giraldi thing, like the Linus and Lucy stuff. Oh yeah, do some of that, man. me back yeah <laughs> well what a show 
This is a lot of fun. See, Jay thought he'd have nothing to talk about, you know? I thought for sure you guys had something planned. Yeah, he thought we were going <laughs> to... You kept waiting for us to drop the bomb on yeah, you? Yeah, I was waiting for, you know, a stuffed duck to come falling down from the <laughs> ceiling or something. <laughs> Get out of here, you crazy duck! <laughs> Too much fun. Oh, Jay, man. I'm glad you came on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for asking me. All right. All right, love you, man. Love you too, bro. All right. Richard, you the man. <laughs> we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a.